This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcasts at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art, and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. No, we have to talk about this. It's totally natural for you to be curious about sex. Welcome to this week's Spotlight on Sex with Lynn and Jen through Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen. So I'm Jen, and I'm here with Lynn today. I'm looking forward to this one, Jen. Yeah, I'm excited. So today we're going to talk about an article that a friend sent to me, and it really was one of those synchronous moments for me where I had a lot of clients coming in, and they were talking about an experience where they did feel kind of like they were maybe sexually assaulted, but they certainly categorized it as not rape. And it was an interesting nuance that I didn't have the vocabulary for. And so reading this article was very interesting because it laid out a lot of the ideas that I was exploring with my clients. And I think it will be great because while I have to protect the confidentiality of my clients, I think we can talk about a lot of the themes through this article. So maybe, Lynn, you can give us your opinion on some of what you read. Um, maybe to start out, Jen, with uh, a little rehash of the article, because it's uh, entitled, uh, The Problem with How Men Perceive Rape. But it's written by a woman, so right there we got troubles. And it's really about her opinions and her experiences. And her experience is something that I think is close to universal for a lot of women. So just briefly, she lived in Chelsea in New York City. Uh, she'd been corresponding online with a guy. He arrives from Philadelphia. They meet in a donut shop. So it's pretty normal from this up to this point. And then he starts saying things about how he's come all this way. And he kind of doesn't want to leave without having a blowjob. And that other girls have uh, done him wrong and it brought him great distance and then not given this necessary blowjob. And uh, the author, or, you know, or the uh, person who wrote this, a wonderful writer, because you feel like you're right there in the donut shop, um, she talked about how she ended up doing this going home with him, thinking it's less work emotionally for her to give him the blowjob, take him home with her, at, rather than hash it out and say, look, I'm not that attracted to you. This hasn't been what I expected it to be. And you're going to have to go back to Penn Station and get on the bus or train and go back to Philadelphia. And we were joking about this before this podcast. For a year, I commuted back and forth uh, from Philadelphia, my residency there, to New York every day. And it's not that far, and it's easily done without a blowjob. I can certainly say I managed it many times, Jen. Yeah. But I think uh, she then brings up the issue of really how men perceive this and how women perceive this. And women are often pressured into having sex with somebody where it's not exactly rape, but it's not consensual. 
Exactly. It's not consented to. And I think that's the point is really what is consent? What are the pieces of this? And our culture's really been talking about this for a long time now. Well, I think it's interesting too, because it brings up the idea of what is consent and that it's not as black and white as we like to perceive it to be. So we started out as a society with sort of this idea of no means no, being pushed forward as a progressive idea. And then it switched over into becoming more of a yes means yes type of thing. Even that, though, falls short for us because it doesn't cover the fact that consent is a spectrum and that just saying yes is not always an easy thing to do. And so I think what we can do is we can look at the different dynamics here. And one thing that really struck me about this article in particular is she talks about how each experience of being denied or being told to override her own bodily boundaries in and of itself was not this huge egregious harm, but it was really the aggregate of it over time that led her to build up this sense that she could not protect her own body boundaries. And I think maybe that's not the way women I work with phrase it or girls, but certainly that is the experience that they feel they have to take care of the other person at their own expense. Right. It's kind of she, uh, Lux, who's writing in Splinter, defines it as microaggressions. Right. So it's the accumulation of these little aggressive episodes over time. What I thought was really interesting about it was it stimulated for me uh, kind of my own period of sexual awakening when I was in college at the University of Wisconsin. It's in late 60s, early 70s. And um, birth control had just become available to women in the student health centers nationwide. It's the first time it had ever happened. And uh, I went and obtained birth control and then was involved in a whole range of kind of meeting men, early sexual experiences through, say, about age 21. Now, what this involved is women were, in general, engaging in this experience for the first time. And we had encounter groups where we talked about this, women, women encounter groups. But we never really talked about the issue of consent because what came up was, are women leading men on? to get in these situations. Oh, you must have been leading him on. It was focused on the woman's behavior and not on the process of exchange. And I thought, this is really a strange thing to be focusing on in an encounter group. I mean, we can certainly only change our behavior generally, but it is a process and we've got to talk about it with men too and really hear their perspectives on this. But this did not happen in the 60s and 70s. So all those women grew up and they raised daughters, sons who are now in their 30s and 40s today. And we've got a lot of discussing that still has to be done. Well, I think what's so interesting too is that it's a dialogue missing from a group that tends to define themselves as very progressive and very feminist, which is, I think, what you're getting at. And yet it's still missing. And so I think this is another area we can push forward and say, no, this is a conversation that we need to have. And I think what's always fascinated me is that it's easier for people to physically undress than it is to undress themselves emotionally. Yeah, no, I think the physical part and executing sexual acts is much easier. Lux writes about it, that it's easier to give the blowjob 
than to really say to the guy in the donut shop, you got to get back on that train to Philadelphia. Right. So when you think about that, why is that one easier? I think that's something really that women have got to think about and men too and talk about more directly. I think to to build on that too is what's interesting is as I was reading this, I read it through a second time just to see if I got like a different perspective. And so the first time I was just very engrossed in the story. The second time I was looking at it and I was looking at similarities between my own life, between those of my friends. And one of the things that was really striking is she says, you know, so she she's very excited for this date at the donut shop. And she said, yet the moment that I stepped into the donut shop, something felt off. So it wasn't like she was sitting there for a long time. And then she was like, hmm, what's going on here? And I need to be very careful because I'm not victim blaming here. I am saying, though, I think that is a very common experience that women have, that instinctually you have this sense that something is off and then you sort of override it. You rationalize it away. Oh, maybe it's this. Oh, maybe it's that. Oh, I should wait this out a little bit longer. And I think the important question to ask here is why do we do that? And certainly it's not only women, but in, you know, this is her story. But I have clients, men and women who do this. You know, I had this instinct that something was off and yet I hung around and, and stayed to see more about it. And some people are able to then extricate themselves and other people get sucked in. And I think it's very important for men and women today, as it's always been, to pay attention to those first few minutes when you're meeting another person because you are going to have more stimulus coming in. You know, there was a book, Blink, that was written and really talked about those first five seconds. And you get a lot of feedback in those first five seconds about what the relationship is going to look like or feel like for you. And I think Lux felt uneasy. Uh, maybe she even saw his face. It signaled that some guilting was coming forward. Anything, you know, but there are signals that she picked up very early. That it was different. Yes, and uh, I think that's very, very important is how do you have the conversation? How do you express those feelings that you're having, even though they're uncomfortable? You know, uh, maybe Lux could have said, I don't have the same feelings for you that I had when we were texting or, or emailing. It's a very different feeling I've got now, and I just don't think we can go forward with, with our plan. And I think that what's interesting is the way she frames it, too, the way I hear a lot of people frame it is I owe them something. I owe them to stay. I owe them whatever it may be. And I think that's a very interesting concept that we owe people something that goes against our instinctual nature. That was the subject of the women's consciousness raising groups in the 60s and 70s. Women felt like they had to put out because they were, you know, if they were sexual, a certain string of behaviors were expected. And I think for women to pay attention to their own sexual feelings, their own desire, you know, it's very, very important. And you've got to listen hard to find it. You know, what is it you really want? Well, I think for so long, too, I mean, we've read lots of books about it. Talking about women's desire, it was so much just not even a part of the conversation outside of women's circle. It was sort of, well, the men has this desire for this woman, so obviously the woman must feel the same. Exactly. And there's a wonderful writer, Deborah Tolman, who's at uh, Wellesley, 
and really writes uh, a lot about girls and women's desire. And our listeners, if they're interested, should really read some of her articles. They're wonderful. They're inspiring. Yeah. And, you know, we're working on our website. I'll make sure we put them up on the website. So I think the other thing, too, that I'm noticing with my clients is that because it's they don't define it as a rape, they're not able to initially make sense of why it is they feel so terrible. Because a lot of times they say, you know, when I left, I thought things were fine. And then I woke up the next day and I just felt really terrible. I hated myself. I didn't understand what was going on. I think there's a lot of self-blame that happens. And and then there's the shame that comes up around it. How did I get myself into this situation? And a lot of these women are on the outside people who seem maybe they're very feminist, maybe they're very progressive, maybe they talk a lot about gender and misogyny and all these things, and yet they still find themselves in these situations. And so I think there's so much confusion and the fact that it's, quote, not rape for them means, well, then I must not feel this way. Like, this is not normal to feel this way. And a lot of my work with them is saying, no, of course, of course you would feel that way if you went against your own instincts. Let's take a look at the patterns. And it, it takes a long time to unpack. Right. And the whole process, if you have these uneasy feelings at the beginning, right? it's not the time to really go forward with actions. Right. And I think in the past, it's been said, you maybe to go back to that if we can and pick that up and just say that it's important, I think, for men and women to pay attention to those very basic and early feelings when they're with another person and not act on them. You know, it's time to think, not act. But that's a very difficult thing in those expectations when you're feeling pressured. Well, I think that's the thing is that there is this pressure. And she even talks about it in the article about the implication, which um, I think comes from, let me pull it up here. It comes from, it's always sunny in Philadelphia, I think. Yeah, it's always sunny in Philadelphia where one of the guys talks about how he uses this technique, which he calls the implication, which is defined as get a girl on a boat, get her drunk, and then when you end up below deck, you know, she'll be sure to comply. And I don't know if it's presented as funny or not, but certainly in real life, that experience is not funny. And it very much highlights, though, how a lot of women and even men feel. I mean, I think maybe we can even go into it a little bit in terms of talking about men, because one of the questions I brought up as we were talking about this is, with my clients, I've noticed that with a lot of this experience of, you know, okay, I don't feel like I was raped, but I certainly don't feel very good about what happened. It happens among peer groups. So, so in a sense, there's a sense that there is a power balance, although, you know, with the gender imbalance, that brings up questions of the power and how that works. But what's interesting is I was asking you about, I know you see more boys that are this age. And do you see this sort of dynamic happening even among, let me make sure I'm saying this correctly, where the where the man or boy is feeling that they are being pressured into being raped Absolutely. Or, or not quite raped? Absolutely, Jennifer, because uh, I think it's really important to keep in mind that this isn't just a one-way street. 
rape. And um, there are the men who have maybe a more misogynist perspective and think that Philadelphia story is perfectly normal. You know, that's the way it should be. Take them down deck and that's the way it goes. But a lot of men, particularly when there's a power imbalance, boys and men, and let's say an older woman and uh, a younger man, and I see a lot of them, they feel pressured to have the sex by the woman sometimes, and they feel and talk about it as if it's rape. They will not use that word because that puts them in a kind of sexual disadvantaged position. But in the therapy, we're able to talk about it some, and it's very important. Older men talk about being pressured to have sex when they've lost capacity to perform. And they feel often then, you know, again, they won't use the word rape, but they're pressured into something that they do not want to consent to. So I think we've been thinking about how to reshape this word, and rape is an important word, and we don't want to forget it. But the whole issue of what is consent and taking time to think about, are you giving consent and are they giving consent? is really, really important. And that it's it's both people consenting. So it's really mutual consent. So you can imagine there's this whole spectrum going on and being able to stay focused and attuned enough to know, okay, this is how I feel. How does this person feel? And that obviously takes more time. Although I want to go back because I'm not quite sure you understood what I was asking in terms of... So I definitely agree that I've worked with uh, boys, men who have been raped or perceive themselves to be raped by, but not using that word, by older women. But what about in terms of peer group? I think I agree with you that with peers, there's more equality, though it can still happen. And um, with the girls, for example, they may be raped or molested by a group of peers. So it's a greater number, and you see that disadvantage. Um, certainly peer age rape can occur. It does at colleges. Oh, right. You know? But with men, I think men are able maybe to push it away when it's a peer. Um, you know, there's less power imbalance maybe. You know, we've been talking about that. And the man may feel he's got enough power when he's with a peer equal woman to really say no. Where I do see it is with peer male um, male sex yeah and it's just they're the same age and there one has maybe physical power advantage and the man cannot say no so they may turn to substances as part of consent and i think to keep in mind that there's all these sexual combinations men women women men everything mm-hmm. women trans mm-hmm. you know the whole world today there's all different combos and But the issue of consent runs across them, you know, equal consent from both partners. What does it look like? So I think the question is really what's the power balance look like? Yeah. And peer is part of power balance factors. I think so too. And I, I think, I mean, if anyone listening knows of a story, of your own story or a friend, I'd love to hear about in terms of whether there are male peers who feel like they have been not quite raped by a female, because I don't hear a lot of stories. And that to me does not mean that it's not happening. But I think 
that's such an interesting thing to explore because I imagine there there would be. You know, this brings up the study. I can't remember the study exactly, but they changed the wording on how they were asking people about their experiences with rape. And when they did that, so, you know, the typical question is like, have you been raped? Have you experienced being raped? Something like that. But they added a, they added a question that was specifically targeted at male experiences. And the experience, the way it was asked was, have you ever been made to penetrate somebody? And when that happened, when they phrased it that way, the rates of rape leveled out between women and men. And I thought that was so striking. I think that that is very key. And that, you know, as you get to be an older woman therapist, you'll have a lot of male patients because they actually feel comfortable talking with women about sex and specifically intercourse, inability to perform, all of these things. And that happens a lot where men feel pressured to penetrate. They focus on that. They worry about it. They worry they'll be made fun of for it. It's a huge part of men's sexuality, I think, underneath. And uh, they don't want to talk with other men about it, but they will talk with a kind of maternal woman about it. And I think that in and itself is so interesting, too, because I do work with boys and I do work with men, but it takes a much longer time for them to even open up about their sexual lives a lot of the time, unless they're coming in specifically around something like that. I think with younger women therapists, because I lived through that period, they often feel somewhat attracted or they don't want to be demeaned or they're worried that the woman won't have had the experience and they'd insult her. Um, so there's so many reasons they don't disclose you know, their sexual feelings in an intimate way to younger women. But you have years to be a therapist, Jen, and you're great now and it's coming. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it because having these conversations are so important. I mean, I think I do notice that it's very interesting. I think it goes back to the idea that you brought up maybe in a different episode of boys and men really feel they have to be sexperts. And so then it's very hard to ask these questions, but they have them. But they also feel they have to be sexperts, not just like for the women or even their partner, if they're gay, that they want to be engaged with. It's really among their peers. So they really don't feel that they can just straightforward ask a question of their peers either. And I think that's a very different experience. They don't talk about this at all ages. They may have a group, as I wrote about in the Sex Lives of Teenagers, where they jack off together, you know. Right. But it's there's not, the not same. discussion. And it's not about the insecurities. I think as men enter their 70s, they do disclose more some of their sexual performance issues with peers. If a male peer is supportive, they might ask about, you know, medicine or product the male is using. Um, so there's a lot of, there's more exposure then, but not during those years, they have to be the sex experts. Yeah, and so I think it brings up a different kind of pressure, which is very interesting there too. This is kind of going in a different direction, but one of the things I, I want to look at too is, Maybe getting in the, in the minds of somebody who is perceived to be an aggressor and, and what their perspective is. Because when you look at a lot of the, I know they do a lot of college surveys. I remember when I was in college constantly having to do these surveys around sex and rape on campus because it was such a big thing that people were finally 
you know, giving attention to. And a, a lot of it was interesting because there were a lot of experiences where I think a lot of the women would have defined what happened as rape or maybe not quite rape, but a lot of the men didn't see it at all. And so I think getting into that, that headspace and, you know, okay, what does that look like? I asked some of my male friends too about, you know, their experiences when they were younger, people they encountered in college and my own experience talking to some of the, the guys. And I think one of the big ones is that Especially when, when a woman, you know, has this really negative experience the day after engaging in sex. I think the perception is, well, you know, the woman has engaged in sex. She regrets it. So now she's going to try to pin this on the guy and she might even, you know, try to pursue something legal with them. You know, a lot of guys come in to either therapy or I've done a lot of work through Youth Guidance Center and the jails. And they're concerned about this or they're facing this. Yeah. And that's the way they view it. The woman consented and then she had regrets and she pinned it on me. And to go back and say uh, a lot of guys perceive it as the woman uh, consented but then regretted it and then pinned some sort of violation or sexual rape on the guy. So this is a perception a lot of guys have around this situation. Now, what do they do with that? I mean, they feel on the defensive then. They get so angry. They, they're angry and they come back. And that's my experience with a whole number of men that I've had in therapy. They're very angry with women for what they view as this betrayal of consent or reversal. You know, they see it as consent, and then there was a reversal on women's parts. Right. And I think it's a couple of things. Men are maybe need to be educated more about what consent from women really is. The process needs to be reworked so it's more obvious really from both sides. And women need to pay attention to what they're feeling and the signals they're giving. You know, it's really working it from all sides to change the process. I think even the idea of having a discussion like this where you talk about like what is consent, what does it actually look like, and moving away from this very rigid no means no, yes means yes, because yes means yes is helpful, it still doesn't address the full spectrum of consent. And, you know, what if your body is feeling like super aroused and turned on, but you don't think it's a good idea to engage with this person, right? Then you have to process like, okay, well, part of me, my body seems to be wanting to consent, but I don't want to consent. And I don't think we have these discussions where people talk about how complex the concept of consent is. And if we don't have them, Jen, and we're running this this podcast here. Yeah, this is my first discussion yeah, about yeah, it. This so. is, they're not happening. Right. And, uh, you know, the funny thing at colleges today, and I see a lot of college students, maybe they'll joke with their sexual partner before, oh, we've got to go through the consent policy here. Right. But they don't do it. It doesn't happen. And they're more likely to use a condom than to go through the consent procedure. Mm -hmm. So you can see that there are real lags in this process and the type of discussion that has to take place. Well, I think it's an extremely uncomfortable discussion. And so a lot of people are already uncomfortable discussing, you know, getting tested, are uncomfortable discussing using the condom. 
And so to have this idea of consent, I think it almost has to be a joke in order for people to be able to talk about it. But then they aren't talking about it. They're just having this joke with each other. Maybe there should be a tiny little consent manual in the wallet with the condom. You know, maybe on the condom wrapper. There it is. You know, oh, consent. We've got to run through the checklist. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's more about paying attention to feelings, your own feelings and the feelings of the other person. And that is very difficult to do. That brings up for me, too, going back to what we were talking about, how someone who is the aggressor here might see it. And I remember you were bringing up, and and I definitely agreed with you, is, you know, I think there is this sense where for the person that is aggressing, they have a desire for the other person. And so the perception is this false kind of frame in which it's like, you know, I feel desire for this person. This person is obviously creating it and doing it to me. And therefore, they must feel it too. And this is, uh, you're using some of the words that a lot of guys will use after this has happened. They'll say, she got me all worked up. She excited me. She was responsible for the situation. And then I acted and she blamed me. Right. So, and they're angry about this process you know, and you don't hear anything about talking, consent, feelings. No, it's all left out of this conversation. So that's how do you get these pieces into it? I think also people are afraid of talking about consent because they think it's not sexy. That's you what know. I was going <laughs> to say too. Yeah, it seems to pull people out of the process. Exactly. But it can be very sexy to talk about consent. You know, I think about uh, some of the novels where it's all kind of literary, it's all in words, but it's an exchange back and forth about sex. And it's very, very sexy. So learning how to do it in a sexy way is as important as learning how to penetrate in a sexy way. Well, I think also it's the idea, you know, here we are, we're having an actual conversation about it. It would be cool if you're having this conversation with your sex partner, probably less likely though. So it's more about the small cues, like how's this, you know, does this feel good or, you know, just little things. And you can even just make sounds or, you know, to, to be able to show, I think it's, it's, Important to have these conversations, but if they're not happening, like when you're about to have sex with somebody, have them outside with other people. So you're at least starting to think about it. I think we have to open up the dialogue of what is consent. And it's really important because this goes back to, I think, the idea that she brings up too, where she couldn't make sense really of her experience, why she felt so bad for so long, and she blamed herself. And when you blame yourself and you shame yourself, then all you want to do is kind of run away from it, hide it, you feel terrible, you believe yourself to be weak, and and then all of that pulls you away from being able to have these conversations. Absolutely. One last thing I think we have to talk about is oral sex. We've been talking about penetration, but oral sex, and this is about oral sex that happens at the, after the donut shop episode. But oral sex also has to be talked about. I think a lot of uh, women will give a blowjob thinking it's kind of a lesser thing. They got away with it if they didn't want to have sex, that kind of thing. But I think it's very important that women think that through again because it gives a a message that's disturbing. And uh, I think men expect it then and it leads to this crazy circle of consent that has to be broken, lack of consent, really. 
Well, this could probably be a whole other episode, but certainly building on what you're saying, what I see with a lot of my younger clients in particular, maybe middle school, end of middle school, is they look at giving a blowjob as far less personal than engaging in penis vagina sex, you know? Mm -hmm. And so basically... It's this idea, I think, that comes from, you know, they're very aware of STDs. They're very aware of pregnancy because that is something schools have been focusing on, at least in this Bay Area. But they look at oral sex very differently because it's sort of a way to get around it, right? Like, oh, I guess I'm at less risk for STDs here. And certainly, like, I'm not going to get pregnant doing this. So, okay, this is one way we can engage in sex that's safe. But I think it brings up that you're not having the conversation about like, well, what does this really ask of you? And I also think it's important to talk about boy on girl or man on woman oral sex. Yeah. There, you asked me earlier, do men feel raped? I think men do feel pressured into giving oral sex sometimes. Yeah. And they view that in a, a negative, maybe even disgusting manner. Yeah. So really learning how to talk about that too, learning to have a reciprocal exchange there. That's five or six other podcasts. Right, I know. <laughs> so much to talk about there, right? Which we definitely can get to. I think I think another important thing to to talk about is that I think for a lot of people there's this perception that, you know, because it's not rape, then you can't have all the feelings you do. But a lot of the women and men that I work with, whatever type of relationship, gay, lesbian, or your uh, heterosexual relationship, the way they they feel after is this sense of not being able to trust the other person. So all these signs that point to the experience being somewhat traumatic for them. And yet I think because it's really seen as like, well, you know, you weren't raped, therefore it can't be a traumatic experience. I think that leaves a lot of people with feelings they don't know how to deal with and they deal with them in, they cope with them in very different ways. And our conversations are really about opening it up for people so that they can have the happiest and, you know, kind of safest sexual context possible, you know, and have it be a good experience. And it involves really looking more at this whole issue around consent. And there's so there's so much there. I mean, we could have taken this in so many directions. But I think, you know, thank you for engaging in this. This is my first conversation about consent. So so many different thoughts are like flying through my head. But hopefully that's how you feel as our listener too. Thank you. Thank you.